Okay, so <coughs> I was looking through the Buddhist teachings uh, about what he called yatha sabha bena, which is the word he the phrase he used to describe the default minds, the mind that um, is sort of. Uh, the, what the Buddha called untrained, the normal mind that uh, uh, we're all born into. Um, it's interesting because uh, he uses a word in conjunction with uh, the default state of the mind. And in neuroscience it's called default mode network often. Uh, the Buddha uses the word baya, which means fear and vulnerable. And the uh, Buddha seems to indicate that there's some underlying inherent tendency for us to be uh, frightened, vulnerable. One word he uses, passivity, uh, I believe, has uh, uh, is linked to like being breakable like a twig. And the Buddha is basically saying there's something in our nature that makes us feel more vulnerable, frightened, fearful than we actually need be. Uh, it's very wrapped up in the core human suffering that is dukkha. Now, um, in philosophy, philosophers have uh, for a long time linked our core fears, the human fear uh, and human suffering uh, as a result of the fact that we are conscious that we're going to die. Since um, er the early Greeks, to uh, many important philosophers like Schopenhauer, to the 20th century existentialists, there's been this idea that men and humankind, I should say, not to generalize, that humankind's suffering uh, is a direct result of the conscious awareness that human beings have that we live towards our own death, that we are going to one day expire. And to uh, this line of thinking, this awareness is what causes our root fear, our root anxiety. Now, and this might sound very compelling, but there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't really adequately suit the task of explaining the core anxiety of the human condition. The first is that many, many people live much of their lives uh, while intellectually aware that that is going to happen, emotionally completely in denial. Uh, many people also are absolutely convinced that rebirth or heaven or some additional state will wait after death. So many people uh, do not have awareness of death or do not specifically aren't triggered by it and yet they can still be anxious and fearful. Uh, I've known many people who I suspect uh, have little fear of death and yet can be very, very anxious and worried in their normal life. Um, psychologists tend to lay human fear and anxiety, uh, discomfort, at the feet of 
early interpersonal experience between child and caretaker. It's known as attachment. And the theory goes that if we have insecure attachment where our parents were not attentive enough or were abandoning or shaming, that the abandonment creates a state of anxiousness that plays out into the rest of adult behavior. But the problem with this theory is that A, at least 50% of the population when they've tested them using a, a clinical study called the STRANGE technique, it's the clinical way that babies are tested for the security of their connection with their parents, 50% show up as having secure connection. And yet, it's a joke to think that only 50% of the population experiences anxiety or fear. Of course, the numbers are far greater. Also, a lot of people who do experience insecure childhood wind up actually not exhibiting anxiety. They wind up avoidant and actually experience less anxiety than people who grow up in secure childhoods. So there's no direct correlation between early childhood experience and, and the experience of fear, uh, anxiety, jumpiness, uh, baya, or tacity. So the Buddha lays it in an entirely different place. And before I explain how he does, I'm going to read some of the Buddha's statements about what he calls the yatha sabhavena, the default mind. And you can get a feeling of just how agitated the Buddha says the normal human condition is before we develop any spiritual practice. In the Arrow Sutta, the Buddha says, the spiritually untrained mind jumps at frustrating events and resists what cannot in any way be avoided. The spiritually untrained mind seeks approval and then suffers at the slightest criticism desperately chases gain, then suffers terribly with loss, becomes addicted to pleasure but is mystified by pain, worries about future states. So I could go on, but the idea is that uh, the Buddha is basically saying that the default state of mind uh, is this kind of underlying what existentialists call angst or anxiousness or nervousness or worry. And um, the Buddha actually calls this process as being one that precedes even the formation of our specific personality traits. If you look at the uh, the, what is called the chain of uh, codependent arising, which is basically the Buddha's explanation of how all suffering in a human life arises. The Buddha says there's a root delusion and fear that exists in the human experience even before what he calls nama rupa, which is our personality traits that are installed in childhood. So the Buddha is saying there's something inherently humanly anxious. And what I would posit this as the Buddha is basically calling attention to um, the fact that we are all born into legacy brains. 
our brains are all, as I've said many times, uh, tens of thousands of years out of date. You bought an operating machine when you became conscious. It would be like going to a computer store and saying, yes, I'd like to buy the Mac, but please give me the one that's 40,000 years old. Because that's actually um, the last time the human brain has really undergone any significant change in the regions, the programming, the way that it's wired. And yet, in the last 10,000 years, due to civilizing and the human species' ability to become the dominant species, we have completely outgrown the amount of fear programming that is native to the human mind. Our bodies don't run particularly quickly. In terms of just escaping prey, we don't outrun uh, a lot of the prey that, uh, the, I mean, the, the, that which uh, could kill us. We don't dig holes very well, nor do we climb trees with great efficiency. That which has allowed the human species to become so dominant is the fact that we are pack animals, and due to our massive frontal lobes, we are able to coordinate through language and emotion <laughs> connection and feel uh, a desire and a, uh, an ability to work together. It takes, there's one study that shows it takes monkeys uh, something like 10 or 20 generations to learn a new trick, whereas with human beings, we can simply through language and imitation uh, and mirror neurons, we can pass along new uh, skills across the entire planet in a matter of a couple of years. If you think about it, up until 19, I believe, 88 or 1989, there was no such a thing as a computer mouse or a trackpad. And within about two years, every <laughs> Virtually everyone could use it and demanded it as part of their computers. So we spread information we lock up very well. Yet we still fear, uh, we still live in this kind of far overdone uh, bias, this amount of fear, worry, concern. And um, one of the things that keeps it uh, very much in the front of our experience is what the Buddha called Pachaniya, which in uh, neuroscience terms means negativity bias. Pachaniya means the tendency of the mind to hold grudges and bad experiences in the Pali Canon. And it's known in contemporary neurosciences we've got minds that are five times more likely to remember all the bad shit that has happened to us than any of the positive. We narrate our lives, we tell the stories of who we are, we establish sakayadidi or personal stories, we, we create the story of our experience five times more based on the negative than the positive. The reason for this is very simple, because of the fact that we're born into legacy brains, we actually have amygdalas that are set up to remember negative experiences, threats, times we were frightened, times we felt abandoned, times we felt rejected, times we felt uh, uh, in any danger. The amygdala has 
one neuroscientist, I believe, legitimately 70% of it is made up to just record negative experiences. So we do not live in objective storytelling minds. We live in vacuum cleaners for misery. We are misery-seeking missiles. We are set up to create stories of our life that is based uh, in more often on times of deprivation and disappointment and um, uh, feelings of unfairness. In fact, uh, some psychologists call this victimization beliefs, the natural outgrowth of negativity bias, or what the Buddha called pachaniya, the grudge-taking quality of the mind. Victimization is a cognitive distortion that has a number of ramifications. In essence, no one is suggesting that really painful Disappointing experiences haven't happened to all of us. In fact, they have. Uh, the Buddha said in the First Noble Truth that all of us experience not only uh, sickness, aging, will experience death, but all of us will experience separation from the love. We will all experience frustrating events, not getting what we want. We will all experience um, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. Those are in the first noble truth. And on top of that, we also get to experience pain. So nobody has had it easy. The problem is that we live in storytelling devices that are much more likely to construct narratives of um, scarcity, deprivation, uh, and thus when we live in victimization stories, it becomes harder and harder to feel any sense of confidence, any sense that we'll be taken care of, any sense that the universe is not a hostile place out to get us. You should see me with my Mac when I don't get a Wi-Fi signal. It's incredible. I'm fine with whenever I experience unskillful people. I'm not really that easily triggered. But when my Mac doesn't get a Wi-Fi signal, I exist in this kind of, like, I'm being fucked with! This is true! Fuck you! So, um, and all of this is in place from this very key, underlying core, very, very human feeling of being vulnerable. We live in brains that are in no way up to date. We are in no way programmed to realize the amount of resources we, uh, and we tend to take threats as um, far greater. In fact, the Buddha said that this, this state of mind creates three key distortions. One is uh, moha. We get worked up by disappointments as if they're real threats to our existence. We tend to become overblown when we encounter a frustrating event or when someone indicates a job might end, we tend to believe, like, oh shit, my life's on the line. Uh, two, rather, we tend to overestimate the belief that somewhere out there there must be something that can make us safer, that, that can make us 
there because right now we just feel a root insecurity. So it tends to create this passionate desire to find something that will protect us because we don't believe in any way that we're anywhere near as safe as we actually are. The average human will die in a century of old age in a bed. Will not, none of us, the chances of us uh, experiencing the kind of deaths that happened to human beings 40,000 years ago, it's not going to happen. None of you will be bitten by a snake on your way back home, nor have a tree fall on your head, most likely. So, uh, the third is rumination. We tend to ruminate, which is think of all the shit that's gone wrong in our lives, the disappointing experiences, and we also tend to speculate, and this is what the Buddha called dosa. So, the mind's root state of anxiety, fear, lack of security creates distortions. And these cognitive distortions now play out um, in many ways that are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, one result is what the Buddha called Sakayadidi, which means we take things personally. That's called personalization of CBT, and basically it's the belief because we uh, tend to ruminate, we tend to remember negative experience, and be because we tend to live from one perspective, we tend to believe that we are being singled out in suffering. That somehow our suffering is slightly worse than or, or different, and that it cannot be understood. We also have self-centered doubt, which is a hindrance called vichikicha, and it's that basic belief that we're beyond help. That no amount of meditation or self-work or Connecting with people would really, really help us. It's a tendency to throw up our arms and give up. We have black and white thinking, which is the Buddha called Utata, which means essentially seeing everything in terms of extremes. We intend that instead of thinking in terms of, oh, this is, you know, a bad day at work, or this person is being uh, unpleasant or whatever, we tend to immediately cast people we don't like as threats, threatening to us, and we tend to, people, people we like, to immediately confer uh, positive beliefs that they haven't actually earned. Another tendency is called patiga by the Buddha, and it means overgeneralization. We tend to take a single bad experience and assume that it will predict the rest of our lives for us. For instance, we get a new job, we show up there, the first day is difficult, we don't know what the fuck we're doing, people look at us strangely because we're new, uh, it requires new skills, and the brain helpfully immediately tells us, oh, it will always be this bad. It will always suck. Um, Overgeneralization is that experience of once having tried out for a play or speaking in public, once and then it didn't go very well in just deciding, okay, I suck at this, I'm going to give up, I'm never going to try again. Just, yeah, I tried once uh, speaking in public. A lot of people, interestingly, turned their back at a lot of useful 
help and therapy, psychopharmacology, whatever, because they tried it once and they didn't like it, so that she's suffering over getting help. So all of these are an outgrowth of this underlying state of vulnerability and negativity that is very much um, a setup of the survival-based brain. The brain that we're born into prioritizes surviving over happiness. In terms of uh, keeping the species going, your happiness is not very important. Your survival, however, is. So the brain you've been born into doesn't really give too much of a shit if you're at peace or tranquil. Or, in fact, it doesn't even think it's a terrific idea to let you have too much serenity because then you'll get complacent. So we're given vast reserves of cortisol. Interestingly, you can run out of, your brain can run out of the neurotransmitters that reward you, which is dopamine, and you can actually run out of serotonin, the neurotransmitters that like, allow you to relax. Your brain will never allow you to run out of cortisol. You will always have enough stressor going. It is impossible. It has never happened that a human brain has run out of cortisol. That's how important the brains feel that fear, anxiety, and vulnerability is to us. So, some of the therapeutic modalities that help us deal with vulnerability and fear, um, all of them in, across psychology and Buddhist practice believe that it's important to see through our cognitive distortions. In Buddhist practice, it's called Yonisa Manasikara, and it basically means rather than believing that our perceptions and our views are true, questioning, questioning our beliefs, investigating through systemic desensitization, which means going into the places that scare us to see if they really are as frightening as our root fear would tell us. One of the great Buddhist stories is about a monk, Nagarjuna, um, I believe it is, I'm not sure, I have to look him up, but uh, he lived in a cave and it was taken over by demons. Of course, the demons were his fears. And he finally said to the demons, you're welcome, you're welcome. He tried to chase them away, they wouldn't go away. So he welcomed all of his demons. And all but one demon went away. But the most ferocious, fire-breathing, gigantic demon stayed in one corner of the cave and wouldn't go away no matter how much Nagarjuna invited and welcomed the demon. So he had to eventually walk over and place his head in the demon's jaw and said, bite, he said to it, bite my head off, go ahead, I dare you, bite my head off. And that's literally sometimes what we have to do to our greatest fears. It's psychologically more sound to do it slowly, not necessarily run and put your head in the demon's jaw. That's like the equivalent of if you're frightened swimming, diving in the deep end. It's better to tiptoe in. But you get the idea. Exposing oneself gradually to that which we are frightened of is a very useful technique. Now, some of the other techniques that the Buddha talked about, samavayamo, is the Buddha's uh, urging us to replace 
trauma narratives. Narratives built entirely around the experiences of the greatest times of being disappointed, um, mistreated, which we very often build entire identities around. Um, now, no one is saying get rid of these stories, and it's very important to feel the feelings that abandonment, shaming, and rejection has cost us in our lives. It's extremely important to feel the feelings. But when it comes to organizing our narratives, re-narrativization is extremely important in ending suffering in our lives. And this means this skillful contemplation and remembrance of all the times in our lives that we've been taken care of, the times that we've not been abandoned, the times when we've acted skillfully and people have acted, people have acted skillfully towards us. Because once again, I can't stress enough, we are all living in minds that are five times more likely to store memories of abandonment and threat than we are likely to recall times of when we've been taken care of. So, even though we might have come from childhoods with extremely abandoning, shaming, rejecting, unskillful parents, still we can find examples in our life of abundance, interpersonal abundance, people who've cared, people who've reached out, people who've shown, uh, who've offered secure connection, emotional bonding with us. It's extremely important to do this because without, without, in essence, learning how to re-narrate our lives, we become prone to living from a perspective of imminent interpersonal catastrophe. We become prone to giving up. We become prone to throwing in the towel in relationships. We become one of the most popular sports these days is who gets to break up with their gate faster. It wasn't quite a sport when I was a kid, uh, but these days everybody's racing to beat the other person to be the one who writes the text. I had a wonderful time, but, you know, have a good one. <laughs> Nobody wants to be the one who gets broken up with. So, because we don't like the idea, uh, we already feel that we've been abandoned, uh, uh, mistreated. And so this is where the Buddha so often emphasized cognizance, which is reflection sometimes that people have been generous, and that we've been generous. Silanusati, reflections of the time that we've acted skillfully and others have acted skillfully. Santinusati, to reflect and contemplate the times in our life when we've known peace, when we haven't been threatened to hold these experiences in the mind, to construct stories where we balance abundance with times of uh, disappointment, so that we're not constructing narratives that will set us up. Uh, when we live in stories of victimization, we then very often feel permitted to act unskillfully in relationships and push people away. And that's not something, that creates a vicious cycle. The more we act unskillfully, the more people abandon us, the more the story that can be very easily set in place can become cemented. Uh, another really important school, skill is what psychologists call role modeling, what the Buddha calls Kalyanamita. 
And it simply means finding people who can be intimate emotionally, who can allow deep connections, who can uh, have cemented relationships. Sometimes people need to avail themselves of therapy, sponsorship, Buddhist teachers, friends. Uh, it's essential that we have people that can provide secure emotional tolerance for you. That means you feel permitted to talk about all the nasty, ugly, dark feelings that you have, and you don't need to worry that your friend is going to fix you, try to correct you, or reject you. They'll just give you a safe space. That experience allows people to feel so much more secure than the root anxiety that we're born into generally allows. Human beings are pack animals. So much of the core feelings of security that we can provide ourselves to undo this root fear simply comes from the, the condition of one person taking a risk and being vulnerable emotionally with another. When that happens, we undo so much of the feelings of aloneness, isolation, uniqueness that we are programmed with. And finally, skillful intentions. It's very interesting how often the Buddha emphasizes renunciation of that which we don't need. The Buddha talks about often practicing eating just the right amount that we need to keep going without gorging, to buy just the right amount of clothes we need to have clothes to wear but not splurging, to um, take just the right of medication that we need to, to find a place that, to live that is suitable but not uh, tries to undo any feelings of low self-esteem. In other words, to let go of our tendency to try to crave or seek um, security externally. Interestingly enough, the Buddha says that craving creates fear. Baya is a direct result of tana. The more we crave, the more we get used to material wealth, the more we seek material abundance, the more we feel is at stake. Because we really begin to believe, oh my God, if my computer doesn't have a Wi-Fi connection, I'm fucked. I'm alone in the universe, or if I don't have this, uh, you know, uh, if I don't get to go to this or have this object working or, you know, then we become more and more and more threatened and we feel more and more vulnerable. Interestingly enough, the people I know in this world that are by far and away the least vulnerable, the most secure, are the Buddhist monks that I've been so lucky to hang out with over, uh, far more than a decade, uh, monks like Suchito and Amaro and Brahm and uh, uh, Tanja. And when you hang out with, and Sundara, when you hang out with nuns and monks, people who own nothing, they live in cooties, they have no positions, they don't know what they're going to eat for dinner, they have no savings account, 
And the only thing they have is secure connection with other monks, but they go out and they basically, in essence, beg for their living. Um, these are the most secure people I've ever met, because they only seek that which they really need, and they radically renounce, become addicted to things that are unnecessary. Now, none of, this is not suggesting that any of you throw away your apartments and and your, uh, I don't know what you have, whatever it is you have, your skateboard, your old kids' thing, your, uh, your hoodies. <laughs> your Tinder. <laughs> Nobody's suggesting that, but it's really worth reflecting that there's a direct correlation between anxiety fear, and the amount of stuff we begin to believe is essential in our life, which really isn't. Letting go of our uh, being willing to... One of the most amazing things is, if you go on a retreat, a week-long retreat, uh, we have them, every Buddhist group has them, and you come back, it's amazing, you come back and go back to a job, and... Before you leave on a retreat, if someone says, oh, you know, they're thinking of closing this down, we might be out of work, you can have to, you know, where am I going to make a living? But after one comes back from retreats, the feeling always I, I used to have when I would come back and there'd be somebody trying to threaten, and, you know, oh, we're not sure after this project goes wrong that we're going to be fired. It's so fucking bad. I was just living in a fucking tent. I was happy. I was living, I was eating rabbit food. That's what they serve you. I was eating fucking berries and twigs and meditating and I was making nothing. I could go fucking live in, you know, India. So, um... Really, the more we experience and experiment with letting go, renouncing, being without at times, it becomes a very valuable lesson that it basically takes away so much of the fear that we carry around. So, I hope that there was something of value in there. Thank you for listening. Uh, and now...